Thank you, Isabel, for the reading of Philemon. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's a, it's a privilege and a joy to be with you this morning and to read out of Philemon, one of these short books of the Bible, but so rich in content and intention. You know, as we were looking, as you were reading through Philemon and listening to it, right, Paul makes a really incredible request of Philemon to welcome back into his family and into their church, Onesimus, who is this runaway slave, a runaway servant. He was part of Philemon's household. Philemon was responsible for his care and his oversight. He lived in the home. He was part of their church. He was part of their family, and he left them. And more than that, he stole from them, which is this, Paul said, I'll repay what he has stolen from you, and, and he fled. He's found Paul. He's found Christ, and Paul is sending him back, sending him back with this appeal to receive him, not as a servant who owes you money, not as somebody coming to you groveling on their knees, you know, because I think there's that picture, you know, Philemon could have been sitting there just, oh yeah, send him back, I'm ready to, I hope he's good and sorry, but to receive him as a beloved brother in the Lord, to forgive him, to give him a place again in your house, in your church, in your midst. And Paul gives the reason why he's doing this, because he doesn't have to. In fact, he says, right, Onesimus is very useful for, to me. I'd rather not send him back to you, right? He's actually more useful to me. It's kind of a dig on Philemon than you are to me. You know, I, I, he's become very, very useful. Very, he's my, my son in whom I love, right? But I'm going to send him back to you, not for Onesimus' sake. Onesimus doesn't need to receive this generosity or this freedom, this what you're going to give him. But rather, he's going to send him back for Philemon's sake, for his household's sake, for the church's sake in Colossae, for that whole region's sake. I'm sending Onesimus back so that the sharing of your faith will become effective. That was Paul's prayer. But Paul gives his intentions in his letters and his prayers. Like at that beginning, that's, that's why he's writing Philemon. His desire is that Philemon's household's sharing of their faith will become effective. He's a partner with them. He knows him well. But in this sharing of faith, there's something that's been holding them back from being effective in it. And he tells them, look, you can't just do this out of compulsion. You can't just show generosity and hospitality towards Onesimus out of the compulsion that you know you should or that I'm telling you to do this. But it has to come from an experience of extreme generosity on your own part. For the sake of Philemon and for his family, for the church, and for the whole region around him. Because this traveled, this letter to Philemon traveled with that letter to the Colossians, right? Because Philemon is in that church. So you have this broad letter to the whole Colossian church, the book of Colossians, and then a particular letter to Philemon, who's in that church. Now give this one to Philemon, and this because this is important. He has to do this, and not just him, but his entire family is going to have to do this. Because for Philemon... His experience of the gospel and the living out of his faith is going to require a lot. Right? That request is actually very, very huge. So it's not just Philemon to forgive him, but Paul addresses Philemon, his wife Aphthia, and his son Aristarchus or Archippus at the very beginning of the letter, and to your house church. It's going to require all of them to be able to do this. And Philemon can't just welcome him back if his wife is still harboring anger and resentment against him and thinks that he should still repay what he stole 
for his son. I mean, who knows the relationship between the son and Onesimus, but apparently it's a strong enough one that Paul has to address him as well. And to that whole house church. This whole house church is going to have to be on board with bringing him back or letting him come back and showing him that generosity and viewing him no longer as a slave, but now as a brother. It's going to require a lot of love and unity within that household and within that church to be able to do it. And you can understand then why Paul is saying that if you do this, wow, the sharing of the faith in that whole church, in that whole region is going to become effective and beautiful because of the generosity and the hospitality that your household and your house church is going to be able to show. Their love and their unity is going to make their faith effective. And this call to unity and order in the households and in the household of God, to be in order to make the sharing of our faith effective, is desperately needed then and still desperately needed now. Our Christian witness, and this is why we've been going through this all summer, right? Our Christian witness, the effectiveness of the Christian witness in our culture, especially this post-Christian kind of burned over world that we live in, really is going to rest not just on us as, as individuals and the degree of our individual faith, but really will rest upon the order of our households, the order of our lives, the order of our churches. Our post-Christian and post-modern world is desperate for authenticity and honesty, for intimacy, for love and for unity. Is it possible for a people to be unified around anything for that self-sacrificial love, for the honesty that's required to trust one another and to love one another, to submit to one another. Like Rosario Butterfield says in her book, which Deirdre put on the screen uh, two weeks ago, you know, we can't call people in this world to something that we are not willing to practice ourselves. If we're calling people to live as part of the family of God, we have to live as members of the family of God. We can't call people effectively to do that if we're not fulfilling our roles. Right, that the household of God is this pillar, this buttress, this support for the truth, Paul writes. Right? Meaning, it's how we live our lives and how we organize our families and our church will support the gospel or we will become hypocrites in the eyes of the world, which is the badge we wear as Christians because of our failures as a church. Right? It's the way the world looks at us as hypocritical because our lives do not match what we believe and what we aspire to. It's on display. The effectiveness of the gospel is on display in our marriages, in our families, and in the church. We show Christ in how husbands love their wives, how wives help their husbands, how parents love their children, how children respect their parents, and how everyone in the church loves and submits to Christ. We need to stop running away from household order as a teaching and as an idea. Right? In fact, we need to start doing the opposite as a church and lean in to some of these difficult teachings and what it means for us and means for our lives, for homes and churches to be ordered so that the sharing of our faith can become effective. This is why we spent the last three weeks going over those areas. George's challenge to husbands, Deirdre's challenge to the challenge of women, and the challenge of children in showing hospitality. This is important. If we don't have our lives in order, if we don't take these things seriously, we undermine our Christian witness and testimony. So what we want to do today as a church is really to look at these areas in summary. You know, what does it mean for a husband to lead his family, to be the head, 
What does that actually mean biblically? Because that's, that's clearly been coming out in discussions, it, through the sermon series, through our studies in the house churches. It's really hard. We, we let the culture define so much of this, like what it means to be the head, what it means to submit, what it means to obey, that we've got to do the work of actually defining these things biblically. So what is it? What does that actually mean? What does it actually look like? And what does it not look like? That's what we want to go through a little bit today. And then the power and the freedom that we have in Christ to do it. So starting with husbands. And again, if you didn't hear George's sermon on this, I really advise you to do it. And there's a study guide that goes with it. And the audio is online. So what do we mean as a church when we talk about husbands being the head or the lead of their home? This is what we mean. We mean that, that, that husbands give up selfish, selfish pursuits of glory, comfort, and distraction and to actively pursue Christ and God's vision for their family. That's what we mean. And then to gently, patiently guide their households to do what God is calling them to do. The summit is, is some as I can do it, it's really being in an active position of seeking God's will for your family. And getting out of that just reactive position in your family. I think as men and husbands, we have a tendency to be very reactive. Just take life as it comes. I, you know, I'm, and I'm in my reactions, I'm going to either be harsh or I'm going to be gentle. But, you know, my wife will bring me an idea. All right, let's grid. Let's do it. Sure, it sounds good. Let's do that. Or my children, something will come up at school. Okay, let me deal with this. We react. But what we're called to do is to lead. What we're called to do is lay down our lives and our selfish interests and put ourselves in a position where I am actively seeking God's will for my family's life, for my wife who I love and I cherish and nurture, and for my children who I'm raising in the way of the Lord. I'm not going to sit in a position of reactiveness, mainly because I'm just busy all the time doing the things that I like to do, but rather I will put myself in a position where I will be seeking the will of the Lord. So what does that look like for a husband to lead or to be the head of a household? It means that as you step into that reality as a husband, as you take those steps to seek God's will, you give up distracting, self-glorifying activities in your life. They start to fall away because they have to fall away. If I'm going to devote myself to prayer and to study and to the church and to loving and cherishing my wife and to raising my kids and to put, I, I don't have time for all of these good activities, fine activities that are in my life because they are draining me and they're taking my time and distracting me and keeping me in that reactive position. Spending time at work beyond what you need to to provide for your family, spending time in leisure activities watching sports, playing games, watching shows, doing... I mean, there's, there's countless things in our lives that we could spend our time doing that are fine, but not beneficial, not good, and that do stand in the way of actually leading and being active and seeking God's will for my wife and my children and my household. It looks like husbands intentionally studying God's word, right, which is hard, not waiting till you know, 15 minutes before house church starts to do the study. You know, not just waiting till, oh, we're behind on it, let's do this. But actually setting aside energy and time 
to the devotion to the Word of God, to praying with your family, for your family, speaking truth to your family that's coming from your study and from your prayer, loving and cherishing your wife, actually supporting your wife and your children's gifts because you know them and you love them and you're spending time getting to know them and putting them in positions where they can thrive, where they're beautiful, where they can use those gifts, not holding them back, but supporting them. What it doesn't look like, and sometimes we have to be clear about those things, it doesn't mean being the boss, right? That's not what it means to be the head or the lead of a household, is that you're the boss. I make the decisions. Everything goes through me. The buck stops here. No, that's not the picture. That's nowhere in Scripture. It's certainly not how God operates and Christ does it. (laughs) He never runs over people with his will. Of course not. It's never being in that position of, I'm the boss. It's rather giving up your life for the sake of others. Loving and cherishing. It also doesn't look like keeping your family happy all the time. I think there's these two, these are probably the two strongest appeals from culture to what it means to be a man, to be a husband, to be the boss. All right, you should be making decisions. That's not true. Your wife may make better decisions than you, and that's okay. (laughs) It's not about you choosing for everyone in your household. It means you're seeking God's will for your household. And then the other is this pursuit of happiness, right? There's that, you know, happy wife, happy life type of idea that's just so pervasive and hard to avoid, right? And it's easy as a husband to think, okay, good days, good weeks are ones in which my family is happy, Oh, that was good. This was a good day we had because everyone's happy. I came home from work and everyone's happy here. This is good. We went on vacation and everybody got along and it was happy. Good. Let me keep doing whatever I got to do as a husband to keep that going. Let's keep that happiness going. But that's not it. That's not honoring to Christ. In fact, a good day, a good trip may involve a lot of conflict. And it will involve sin, and it will involve the addressing of sin, and it may be messy and ugly. That may be exactly what Christ is doing. I've got to stop measuring the success of my parenting, my being a husband, as happiness. The fruit that I'm chasing is not happiness. That my wife is happy, that my children are happy. Holiness. Honoring to God has got to start being the, the fruit that I'm chasing, and I've got to start pushing towards that. And stop trying to keep them happy all the time. Because all I'm doing is just keeping myself happy by trying to keep them happy. I just don't want to do my job as their husband and as the father. I just want them to keep going. What does it mean for wives? What do we mean as a church when we keep using these phrases like, Wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, be a helper to your husbands. What we mean by that. And what scripture means is that it's, an, it's the position of giving up your control of your visions and plans for your family and for your life, giving it over to Christ and to your husband and supporting your husband as he strives to lead your family and God. It doesn't mean getting rid of your plans, throwing them out, never being the one, never having any ideas, never having anything. You know, no, no, no. It means giving them to the Lord. And to your husband, entrusting yourself to their care. Like, I trust God 
with what I want to do with my life. I trust God with my family, and I trust my husband with my family and with my ideas. It means helping your husband, being in that position of help. It really means being vulnerable and open-handed. I was meeting with Deirdre this week about this, and that's how she phrased that. I thought that was really helpful. Right? It's, as, as a husband, I'm in a position, I'm not going to be reactive. I'm going to try to be active. <laughs> and as a wife, right, it's this position of vulnerability and open-handedness. I think I know what's best, but I'm going to hold my plans and my desires with an open hand. I give them to the Lord, and I give them to my husband, right? So what does that look like? That looks like for wives, wives sharing with their husbands their plans, their callings, their gifts, their visions. They have to. They have to share these things. You have to speak to your husband. You give to them. You're entrusting to your husband Right, what your fears and your anxieties, your hopes and your dreams, you're giving those over to your husband to love you and shepherd you. So it means sharing. It means a devotion to prayer, a devotion to the word, to the church. It looks very much like a husband doing the same things, devoting themselves to prayer and to study and to the fellowship. It looks like patience, waiting at times, waiting on your husband waiting on the church, ultimately waiting on God to act. Waiting for unity instead of plowing over, rolling over your husband, rolling over your kids, rolling over your house church. Because that's going to be the temptation all of us have, as husbands to roll over our wives, roll over our children as wives, to roll over your husbands, roll over your kids, and just, this is good for us. We're going to do it. Let's do it. But rather, for the sake of love, for the sake of unity, for the sake of the gospel. I know this would be good for us, but I'm not going to do it. We're not going to do it until we have unity. Okay? So it means pumping the brakes. It means being in a position of vulnerability, of prayer, of waiting. Not nagging or complaining, and not manipulating. Thank you, Bobby. I think we're all right there with you. <laughs> what it doesn't look like, what it doesn't look like for a wife to submit to her husband, it doesn't mean staying home and homeschooling. And we have to be cautious about this because there's many of us in the church that that is our life where our, the wives stay home and we homeschool. I don't know if we want to do a show of hands, but, but it's, it's been a trend. It's been a trend that's growing, not just in our church, but in culture, towards homeschool, about Christians and non-Christians, those types of things. We have to be careful. That's not what it means to be submissive. You can stay home and not trust your husband. You can, you can stay home and raise your kids all day and do their schooling and still be running over them and running over your husband and not following the will of God. It doesn't mean you can't work. It doesn't mean you can't be active. It doesn't mean you have to stay home. That just We have to stop looking at pictures of what it looks like and say, that's got to be it for me, and I got to do what they do. It's not about what you're doing. It's about that position of the heart. You know, do I submit myself? Do I, am I entrusting myself to Christ and to my husband? Do I give this over? To, am I being patient and waiting? Or am I just doing what I think is best for us and pushing him to do it and pushing everyone to do what I think is right? It certainly doesn't mean being quiet and passive. That certainly is not the picture either, right? 
uh, we have so many great pictures in Scripture of, of women, and you know, Proverbs 31, or wh- wherever you want to look at these women who are on Paul's missionary teams, I mean, they're speaking, they are teaching, they are leading, they're doing things, they're using their gifts and their callings. If you, if you are passive and not speaking, you are certainly not helping your husband, right? That's, that's doing the opposite of what you've been called to do. So it certainly doesn't mean being quiet, and it doesn't mean not using your gifts, it's that picture, though, of open-handedness and vulnerability. This is what I would love to see happen in my life, and my family, for us, for where we're going, and I'm giving that over. I'm entrusting it to the Lord, and I'm going to trust my husband with it because some way in giving it to him is going to be a way that I'm going to experience Christ more, and he's going to experience Christ more, and it may be through conflict and hardship and a long time of figuring this out. <laughs> But it's going to be worth it to be in that position of vulnerability because it's the position that Christ goes into. Now, then there's everybody else, though, because not everybody in this room, obviously, is a husband or a wife, but we're still called to the same things, and we still have order in the church, and it was necessary for the church to be ordered. So what does it mean for all of us in the church? If you are a single in the church, if you are a child in the church, if you are divorced in the church, if you are wherever you're at in the church, but not a husband, not a wife. Well, it means we're to submit to Christ and to the church. And what that looks like for all of us is that we are going to seek the will of God in and through the careful teaching and shepherding of the church. Not outside of it, right? Like, I'm not going to do my searching for God and study of God away from the church and then come to church to see if this church fits my what I'm doing over here. It means, right, I'm going to entrust myself to this church, and I'm going to let them teach me. Right? It means being in that position of being teachable. Let's see what they have to teach. Right? That's so hard, especially in our world and our culture today where we are all experts on everything, and we've done all of our own research, and I've come to all of my conclusions. It's very hard to be teachable. Instead, we just judge whether or not that teaching matches what I think and say, oh, well, I don't like this church. I'm going to go find somewhere else that their teaching matches. It means being teachable. What that looks like then is it really looks like showing up whether we feel like we fit in or not. Because that's going to be hard too in the family, in the household of God. You know, we have a tendency to want to be involved in communities or places where everyone's like us. Similar age, similar demographics, similar interests, all those types of things. And we may feel out of place. You know, like, oh, I look around the room and there's nobody else my age, or there's not a lot of young people, there's not a lot of old people, there's not a lot of this, there's not a lot, you know, and it's easy to feel like, this isn't for me. No, be, submitting yourself to Christ and to the church means showing up, whether or not you feel out of place or not. It means sharing, whether you feel like it or not, sharing your time, your energy, your resources, your hopes, your plans, your sins, and your forgiveness. And I was talking about going through conflict in the church. And it's going to look really messy, right? I think if you've been in the church for a while now, it's messy, and it will be messy. Households are messy because our households don't look the way that we thought they were going to look. It doesn't go to plan. Nothing goes to plan. And some of us have to be honest with that, right? Because the reality is we don't always like where we're at or how we got there. Not everybody in the church is happy being single. It's not your choice. Some of you wish you were not. 
Some of you wish, don't, aren't, it's not your choice to be without a child. You wish you could have had, you could have one. That's messy. That's ugly. I wish my husband was still with me. I wish this was still the way it was. There's a lot of things that are not the way in which we want them to go. And it's going to look hard. So we walk together through those things. We share those disappointments with the community and with Christ. And we let ourselves be taught and shepherded. It looks like wanting to be challenged and convicted. That's hard again, but that's what it looks like. It looks like there is no area of my life that I'm not going to open up to the gospel. Now, the ones that we don't open up, right, usually that means money. Right, and I'm open to the gospel except for when it comes to how I use my money or how I raise my kids. That one's probably even more off limits now than money. I don't, I'm not looking for your advice. I don't want to know your teachings on kids because I, I want to trust that I'm doing it right. My marriage, sex, any of these things, right? They're just off limit subjects. I will be sharing and I'm teachable in everything except for some of these main areas. What it doesn't look like to be part of the church is never disagreeing and mindlessly following instruction. It never looks like that. It never looks like just be quiet and do what you're told. Just follow along blindly with whatever comes out of the pulpit or whatever a house church leader tells you or whatever. You know. No, of course not. It, it, any of these relationships, no one's rolling over anybody. That never looks like Christ. Because ultimately, what it comes down to with any of these spheres of relationships, ultimately, is it a growing experience of love and unity, or is it not? Are you growing in and demonstrating love and unity in these relationships? As a husband and a wife, are you growing together in love and unity, or are you not? In your house churches, in your community, are you growing together in love and unity, or are you not? Is there a unity in the pursuit of God's purposes for your life? Is there an eagerness to lay down your life, your plan, your gift, your resources for the sake of the kingdom? Sacrifice and service with an experience of peace and joy. Or we could be experiencing the opposite, right? an increase in distrust and a lack of unity, a hopelessness towards accomplishing God's plans and purposes, a growing sense of distance from others. When you do what you're called to do, because I think many of us are like Philemon, you can count on us to do what we've been called to do but it'll come out of compulsion. Just tell me what to do, Paul. I'll do it. Comes out of a sense of duty and compulsion, ultimately ruled still by fear and resentment and difficult to forgive and to love others. So as a church, this is why we've been going through this and going through this study together because we have to shed, a lo- it's hard work, We've got to start shedding our cultural projections of what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife, what it means to lead, and our religious projections that we that's so easy just to kind of fall into. 
out of compulsion and out of duty. We have to claim scripture and live lives that are faithful and effective. We have to stop running away from these teachings and areas that make us feel uncomfortable. And we have to lean into them and honestly pursue God for his direction of how to actually live these things out. And we have to deal with the thing that really is keeping us from doing it faithfully. And it's really just fear. Right? We're afraid. Right? When I'm honest with myself, as husbands, right, we're really afraid. <laughs> afraid to step into leadership, to do anything like this. As wives and as just members of the church, we have a fear of submitting ourselves to others, putting ourselves into the care of someone else, especially someone who doesn't seem trustworthy. Fear for, of obeying as children, right? Can I obey my parents? Can I submit myself to the church? Because in all of these positions, right, as husbands, wives, children, all through the, through the church, you're putting yourself willingly into a position of vulnerability. I'm vulnerable. If I step into leadership as the head of my home, I'm going to try actively to do things and seek God's will, then I'm going to, like, shepherd my family to that. I'm out on a limb. What if they don't do what I, what if I, you know, what if my kids don't listen to me? What if my wife doesn't want to follow along? What if what I thought was good for our family turns out to be a complete disaster? And that comes back on me. I'd rather not. It's vulnerable it, to be in that position. To submit is an incredibly vulnerable place where you are, where you could be taken advantage of by those who are in authority. In all of this, it puts us in a position of weakness, which is a terrifying place to be. Nobody wants to be weak. Which is why right, we have such good news in the gospel as a church. That we don't have to do these things. We don't have to just muster up the courage to do it. You're like, yeah, get over it. Come on, work harder at it. Come on, husbands, just be husbands. Wives, come on, just be. No, we don't have to muster up this strength. Rather, we have Christ, who has overcome my fear, who has satisfied my deepest longings. Because when I look at that calling, when we look at this calling upon us as a church, man, the pressure. How can I possibly do this? How can we do this as a church? How are we ever going to live up to this calling that we have? I can look to Christ, and I can see what he's done already for us and on our behalf. Christ gave up his life and his interests to lead and to shepherd. And he was rejected by the people he came to lead and to save. He submitted his plans, his hopes, his wishes, his dreams to his father. And it was met with silence. And he died alone. He entrusted himself to others to protect and to care for him and he was beaten and ridiculed and abandoned by all of his closest friends and anyone who would have any help for him he was rejected so that we will always be accepted he was abandoned so we would always be cherished he was crushed so we will always be protected. Then he rose from the dead, conquering death itself 
taking all those voices that tell us constantly, right? You can't do this. You'll be taken advantage of. It's not possible for you. It's not safe. You're a failure. No one should trust you. No one could do this for you. And he puts those voices to shame in his resurrection. All things are possible. And then he gives us that same power to do the things that he's called us to do. Do you see the difference that makes when it comes to these roles now, when it comes to doing this? I have nothing to fear because of what Christ went through on my behalf. I can lead my family despite my past, my present mistakes, and my future mistakes. I can just do it, knowing that Christ has reconciled all things. I can submit, we can submit ourselves to our authorities, despite who your husband is, despite your husband's past, present, and future. We can submit ourselves, despite our circumstances, despite our desires, we can put ourselves in that position of vulnerability because we're cared for. We can't be taken advantage of. We can be part of this family despite how different and out of place we feel because Christ has brought us in. Which then strengthens us to be honest. If Christ has done this, I can be honest. I don't have to fake it till I make it. I don't have to act like some manly man who's the boss and doing all of these things. I can be honest. I can be open. I can be honest with God, and I can be honest with other people. I can share that I don't do this well, and I can ask for prayer and support. I don't have to do it well because Christ did it well enough for me. I don't have to be this perfect leading husband, or you don't have to be the perfect submitting wife. Christ did it. I'm just walking in this reality. I want to be faithful to this, though. I'm striving for this in honesty and in trust. And it empowers us to step into faith, not out of fear or compulsion, like with Philemon, but out of confidence. I step into these realities now with strength. Husbands, love your wives and your children. You have to do this because Christ does this. Stop pursuing all of the things in your life that are distracting you from faithfully pursuing God's will. you got to start cutting these things out. Start pursuing what God wants to make your wife and your household more beautiful. How can you love and cherish your wife more? you got to start pursuing those things and doing them. How can I care for my children more and support them, develop them, pursue those things? Wives, trust your husband. Not because they're trustworthy, but because Christ is calling you to do it. Your timing is not God's timing. Getting your way will not lead to your true and ultimate happiness. It just isn't going to. Give your hopes and dreams to Christ and to your husband and wait patiently. How can you love your husbands more? And everyone else, right? Submit yourself to one another. Commit yourself to the church. Entrust yourself to the care of your brothers and sisters in the church. Be honest and open. It is not by chance that you are a part of this community. You have a role to play. 
play your part. How can you love your brothers and sisters more? Because if Jesus is who he said he was, and all of Scripture says he is, and he did what it says he did, this is good news. I may not be, in fact, not the may not, I am not the best husband. I don't have to be. I'm not the best husband. I'm not the best father. I'm not the best preacher, pastor, elder, house church leader. I'm not the best at any of these things, and that's all right. Praise God. But I am the one that God wants in these positions. You are the husband God wants your wife to have. You're the one in that position for a reason. God has reconciled all things in heaven and earth and has put you in these relationships. Play your part. You are the wife God wants your husband to have. It may not look the way you thought it would look. Husbands, right, you look at your relationship, this wife doesn't look the way that I thought she was going to look. This doesn't look the way I thought this was going to look. I didn't think my children were going to be like this. I didn't think church was going to look like this. I thought it was going to look like this. Trust Jesus, right? Play your part. You are the member of the church that God wants to be the member of PCC. Play your part. As we faithfully play the parts that we've been given, the roles that we've been given, and we grow in love and unity, the sharing of our faith becomes more effective and beautiful. As we step into these roles, we will experience the gospel more in our own hearts and in our own lives. And we will experience that freedom and the peace and the joy that comes from playing our part. And we will make the gospel beautiful and attractive to a world that is desperate for these things. But we all need to put on Christ and to put off our old self. Let me pray.